Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a bright day in a rather deserted city of Westminster in current times, as once again we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on the topic of leadership. I am Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by Marina Robertson. Marina is a Senior Director at the NPS Group, an award-winning and community-focused multidisciplinary property consultancy firm in London. Marina, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Great to be here, Scott. Thank you. Thank you, Marina, for taking the time to, of course, join us on uh, the programme. Now, um, if we just dive straight into the discussion um, on leadership then, what I'd like to understand first and foremost is what that word leader actually means to you, because it can mean quite a lot of different things to many different people. Yeah, it is really interesting. Um, Actually, it is a very interesting question going straight back to basics. I suppose for me, um, leadership will exist as long as we have goals to achieve um, and decisions to make. Uh, It is about that uh, collective um, responsibility um, kind of gathered into one uh, in order to be able to, to uh, achieve a certain goal uh, by gathering lots of people, lots of different views and skills and abilities and cultures to be able to achieve a goal. Um, so, yeah, interesting question. And for me, it's about being able to achieve a, a collective goal. Uh, and also when the decision needs to be made, the, we also see it very clearly there. Mm-hmm. And if we think about your own leadership style, Marina, how would you describe that? It, again, interesting question. I think it has changed over the years. Um, when I started my career, I it was I suppose it it changed uh, because I observed the leaders that I associated myself with or I could connect with when I started out my career. Um, and then it kind of involved. Sometimes leadership and management get confused. Uh, at this moment in my career, for me, it's all about enabling others to be the best they can be in order in order to achieve our joint objectives, our joint goals. Uh, and that's what it means to me now. Um, in the past, it has been being the person that makes the decisions, uh, consulting with others, um, but uh, actually being quite directive in terms of leadership. Uh, but at this stage in my career, I'm lucky enough to have reached a point where I kind of understand my leadership style and it is very much about getting other people being the best they can be. Mm. And you say there that you see leadership and management as being fundamentally separate things. Um, I think there is an element of management that does come into leadership as well, particularly mm. people management, because as mm. leaders, we find ourselves having to constantly um, adapt our individual approaches, as it were, to be able to, of course, um, work with different people, different personalities. And when you're bringing together a group of people with different skills and different views, as you've, of course, mentioned there, to have a really cohesive team, that that's a really important element, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, absolutely. You cannot really divorce the two when hierarchies and social cons- social or organizational constructs 
kind of takes upon you the need to manage people and to be part of hierarchies and structures and systems. Uh, so you're absolutely right. It is very difficult to divorce the two. Uh, I see uh, management more about the process of getting people to perform uh, and leadership more about creating the vision and allowing people to find their own way uh, to achieve uh, what uh, you want them to. And that is, I have experienced that as someone in receipt of, of leadership and management, but I'm actually uh, displaying it. Um, I have always performed better when uh, leaders I've worked with, managers I've worked with, allowed me the freedom uh, to figure out myself how I was going to achieve those goals. And actually, in almost every single case, people surprise you and overachieve because mm. people love want to get out, out of bed in the morning to go in and do a good job. Absolutely right. And I think it, there's a lot to be said for that approach of taking a bit of a back seat as a leader and allowing people a bit of independence to almost take on their own form of leadership and figure things out for themselves. Because thrusting people out of their comfort zones, in a way, is going to be really, really beneficial for their development in the long term, isn't it? And I think, to a degree, we are seeing that also right now, aren't we, Marina, with the COVID-19 pandemic, as people are really mucking in, they're out of their comfort zone. There's a lot of uncertainties to what's going on and yet they're really bringing out the best in themselves absolutely i am so proud of all our staff how they have felt uh, and, and dealt actually uh, during this pandemic regardless of their own personal circumstances every single person has come out and make made sure that services to the extent that they can can continue to be delivered uh, and also think really creatively about how and innovative. It has allowed people the, the opportunity to innovate um, and think really differently and also accelerate some of the stuff we always knew about how people manage and what uh, makes them productive. For example, it's okay to be able to work agile and actually we have been forced in this situation where the entire workforce of the country, more or less, um, is working from home and we continue to be productive. There is no doubt that it will be an economic impact, but there is not a single person that is in employment that is not trying to make sure that this is minimized and we have to trust and believe in our people. I think that's absolutely right. Trust at this point in time is hugely important during a pandemic such as this. And the response that people have put in everywhere has been truly inspiring. Um, speaking of inspirations, uh, Marina, um, you mentioned earlier, of course, some other leaders that you maybe encountered throughout um, your career. Um, are there any examples of people who you have looked up to and have maybe had an influence on you as you have developed? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, Obviously, I'm not from this. I was not born uh, in this country. I'm not uh, a Robertson by birth, um, as your listeners and yourself can probably tell. So, as a woman, especially working in the construction and development sectors, you do look around for other female role models. 
And actually looking back, it was both males and females that inspired me to be able to also myself believe on what I can achieve and be the best I can be. So plenty of role models, both male and female. And my background is local government. And I think when people look at careers, they kind of look down a little bit on local on local government. And it is a, a very enriching uh, career with some amazing people that have a fantastic ethos around serving the public, regardless of the political party. I've worked for all sorts of uh, local government organizations or different political parties. Every single one set out to do the best for the people they serve. And working with these people, even if they have their weaknesses and their drawbacks, you cannot help but be inspired by what they set out to achieve. So that is really something that is very close to my heart. Uh, and that it has really inspired me throughout my career. All these people that go out of their way to make sure schools are built, houses are built, social care services are delivered. And we can see it now. A local government is bearing the, um, the a huge load when it comes to responding uh, to and with communities to the COVID pandemic. It is hugely important, and as you say, yeah, Marina, the response that they've put in. Um, because these people aren't always in the public eye, as it were, do you think that sometimes their great leadership aspects often can go unrecognised compared to the likes of, say, the Prime Minister and others in the higher levels of government, who, of course, do have a lot more national attention? Without doubt. Um, in my spare time, I'm a vice chair of a small housing association in Wolfram Forest in London. And there we have people that have given their whole careers in supporting people in sheltered accommodation. Actually, I look around around me and I say, I, and I'm talking to the chief executive of the housing association about putting people forward for MBEs because these are the kinds of people that live in those communities and serve those communities. And actually, they do go unrecognized. And actually, these are the people that are so inspirational that they don't even expect to be recognized. They just do it because that's what their heart uh, tells them and that's what uh, they're made of. Mm, exactly. I think some people uh, do prefer just to get on with things and uh, they don't really mind as such if they do go under the uh, the radar um, in that respect. Um, and based upon the experience that you have had, not just, of course, working uh, with those people, but that which you've accumulated throughout your career, uh, Marina, if you were to perhaps give some advice to somebody who was about to start their first day in a leadership role, if you will, what sort of advice would you give them? For me, that is, that is very easy. My first piece of advice would be actively listen to people around you and don't make assumptions about people, about situations. I think the, uh, that is, when I started my career, I, we all carry our uh, baggage. And uh, when I I made quite a lot of assumptions about people. I assumed that people were like me. I assumed that some of my staff wanted to progress in their careers. So I was giving them opportunities for progression. And I had this situation where someone said, I don't want to get promoted. And I was like, how can you not want to get promoted? And I, and I was like, I don't, I'm quite happy with my life. Uh, and, you know, so 
you have all these assumptions, and I think actively listening to people would be the the biggest thing they can do to enable them to be good leaders for now and the future. And speaking of the future, Marina, if we do focus on that before we do wrap things up on the programme, do you give me an idea of what you envision the next 12 months holding for yourself and for the NPS group as we move through the COVID-19 pandemic, but also as to what you envision for beyond then as well as we emerge from this situation? Obviously, our number one priority is to make sure that we continue to maintain our services to the uh, communities we serve and looking after people. Um, and it has to be that in the short term. Uh, in the medium term, we, the world will be a little bit different. We had a, a good footprint in terms of our connection to the public sector. And I think we have a role to play around designing that future with the public sector. Um, we are able to uh, think creatively about how we can deal with some of the challenges the public sector faced before, during and after COVID. Things like skills, access to funding. Uh, We're about to enter a recession after COVID uh, and we need to be able to work together with the public sector to, uh, to deal with the challenges that we'll face. But also the future is bright. But if this situation has given us the opportunity to rethink innovation, um, I read something recently that really inspired me. And this, it said about people being employed in the past based on their IQ. Um, in the last about 20 years based on their EQ, emotional intelligence. But now it's all about AQ. It's the adaptability quotient. So the world is changing and we're changing with them. And we want to stand side by side with our clients and the public sector to jointly create and enjoy that future uh, that that we can all see is coming, uh, that's where we're going to have to go through some real challenges in order to get there. Mm, There will be some real challenges, uh, Marina, for sure. But as we move through this period and we start to overcome some of those challenges, I think it would actually be fantastic, given how informative it's been having you on the programme today, to perhaps catch up again and just reassess how the MPS group is doing and how you've adapted to some of those challenges as well. I think for the listener's point of view, that would be hugely, hugely fascinating. Absolutely. We have already started thinking about how we can work with the public sector, what it means in terms, as I said earlier, in terms of skills. Uh, The public sector, in terms of infrastructure and construction, had a lack of skills before COVID. It's not going to be a new thing. So how do we build capacity? It's really important. In terms of places, how do we create those inclusive places that we all aspire to be? There is hardly enough any funding. So how can we innovate in terms of design? The climate change challenge continues to be there. It hasn't gone away. We have paused, but it has not gone away. We have some real opportunities to to actually make some real uh, a real difference in the way people in Great Britain experience their lives and actually make positive difference in that. 
Mm, I think that's absolutely right, Marina. We're just about out of time on the programme today, unfortunately, but thank you ever so much for taking the time to come onto the air and speak with me. It's been a real, real pleasure and also a really informative and insightful experience, as I uh, said before. Do take care and do stay safe with everything still going on in the meantime, especially. And you too. Thank you very much, Scott. Thank you. That was Marina Robertson, Senior Director at the MPS Group. Coming up next on the programme today, I will be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett became one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, having held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's Cabinet and having served as the MP for Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough for 28 years. He was first elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough, his old constituency. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. And that's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both 
the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain, and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? 
And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing. 
uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows, those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy sh cut, uh, shutdown. Um, these kind of things you, you can look at. 
but you are immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? 
I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently, let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a 
a uh, credible opposition nor uh, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer, and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says 
that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.